Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Eric Kaufman, a Hong Kong-born, Vancouver-raised, British-based professor of politics, affiliated scholar at the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, the Manhattan Institute, and the Policy Exchange, author of the provocative and must-read book, White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities, and one of the most interesting Anglosphere thinkers on our current cultural and political moment. I'm grateful to speak with him about his diverse and fascinating research, the rise of identity politics, and the prospects for a long-term settlement in our culture and politics between the left and the right. Eric, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me on, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. You'll have to bear with me, Eric. I've been so excited about our conversation that I have a lot of disparate questions that I want to try to put to you. Let's start with your personal biography. As I mentioned, you were born in Hong Kong and spent a major part of your life in Vancouver, but you also lived in Tokyo for 10 years and now teach at the University of London. Uh, Let me ask you a two-part question. First, how has your global experience shaped your work as a scholar and a political observer? And second, besides hockey, what do you miss most about Canada? (laughs) That's a good question, actually. Well, just on the background, I mean, my dad was with the Canadian uh, Trade Commissioner Service in China and Hong Kong. He was actually in China during the Cultural Revolution, actually, witnessed that uh, firsthand. Um, And then, so yeah, we lived in Tokyo, I mean, a total of 10 years in a chunk of eight and a chunk of two. Um, And that's had a very important impact in the sense that if you grow up outside your, your home country, then you become a lot more aware of things like national identity, because you you have a school day where, you know, I went to an international school and every uh, everybody has their national booth. And so you become more attuned to that than if I just grew up, uh, you know, somewhere in the middle of Manitoba, for example. So I do think that makes a difference. And, um, and, and so it then leads you to sort of look at the world a different way when you do actually come to live in, in in my case, in Vancouver in the in the late 1970s. So that's when I first actually, um, you know, went to elementary school in, in, in Vancouver and kind of became a normal Canadian again. You've carved out a fascinating academic career that lies at the intersection between ideology and identity. How did you become interested in these issues? And how, Eric, would you describe your work? Well, I, I, I became interested in the question of national identity through my own personal biography. I also come from a kind of a mixed ethnic background. You know, I'm a quarter Chinese, quarter Costa Rican, half Jewish, and so on. And, and then I also grew up in Vancouver, which is a, 
a city that was undergoing, and I mean, it's still undergoing ethnic change, but but at the time, this was sort of the the rise in the sort of Hong Kong Chinese uh, population of Vancouver was was underway, and so. For all of those reasons, I've seen a lot of these changes, and that's, you know, both the being born abroad and, and being raised abroad for a large extent, and also having a mixed background, and also being in a in a culturally diverse and changing city. I think has all incubated these interests, um, and so yeah, I, I've long had those interests. The ideology part, though, is something I came to later because uh, it's only as I was interested in this whole question of national identity in ethnically changing contexts that I then come across the role that ideology and particularly a certain kind of cultural left liberal ideology plays in the whole story uh, around, first of all, the reform of immigration laws, but also then subsequently sort of speech restrictions uh, or restrictions on the Overton window of what's acceptable to debate around, say, immigration levels, which I think is sort of key to understanding the populist moment in the West starting in 2014. Your research with the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology has brought empirical evidence to bear on the ideological worldviews of university professors in Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, and elsewhere. The numbers are really striking. In, in Canada, for instance, roughly three quarters of professors describe themselves as left wing, and only 4% identify as right wing. These numbers are powerful precisely because they accord with people's intuitions about campus life. I guess my question for you is why? How much of it is a case of left-wing gatekeepers versus a self-selection bias or some other explanation for why we have what you've come to describe as a monoculture on university campuses across the Anglosphere. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this ties in, I mean, by the way, I should say my interest in this ties in with my interest from my first book in this ideology, which I call left modernism, which is a sort of cultural version um, of egalitarianism, which I think is very powerful in our culture and has shaped uh, a number of generations since the 1960s. If you look at the composition of the professoriate and the composition of journalists in mid-1960s America, you can see that there was a ratio of about one and a half on the left to one on the right. Or in the social sciences, like sociology, it was maybe three to one. Fast forward to our time, and those numbers, instead of three to one, it's like 12 to one. Uh, and for media, it's all, there's also been something like a tripling. So there's been a major shift. Yes, it's the case. Academia has always leaned left, and particularly social sciences and humanities academia. But that situation and the, the balance between the two has really moved. And it's now starting to move in a number of other professions, such as medicine and law. And, and so I think it's worth noting that, in fact, there's been a significant change to our elite culture as a result of these recruitment strategies. Part of this is about uh, political discrimination, and some of the studies that, that you cited, I show that you know, something like 45% of Canadian academics that I polled would not hire a known Trump supporter for a job. In Britain, about one in three academics polled wouldn't hire a known Brexit supporter. So there is significant political discrimination, but there is, in addition to that, I think, a certain um, political typing that academia comes to be seen as a left-wing profession, much like nursing comes to be seen as a female profession. And I think this combination is really what's driving it. You've championed institutional reforms to address this lack of intellectual diversity on campuses, including what you've described as a, quote, activist regulator. I have a two-part question for you. First, what do you have in mind in terms of a practical response to the academic monoculture? 
And second, what would you say to those who would argue that this amounts to ideological affirmative action? Right. So I think there's two parts to this. One, the academic regulators. So there's a, a higher education freedom bill here in Britain, which I've, we at Policy Exchange, I wrote a report and a number of the recommendations went into the white paper, which have been adopted in the bill. I mean, something like the academic freedom bill is mainly about preventing institutions from cracking down on individual academics and students for speech. It's about interfering with no platforming to ensure that doesn't occur. All of that, I think, is very important. Um, but it's only part of the story. So I do think that's important. The, I, I, there's nothing in the Higher Education Freedom Bill that deals with uh, intellectual or viewpoint diversity. And I think that is the second big part of the problem. Because even if you have University of Chicago-style policies protecting rock-solid protections for staff and, and, and their ability to speak, when you have political biases and discrimination at the level of faculty and students, that will lead to self-censorship and chilling. So how do you then deal with this question of declining viewpoint diversity? I, I mean, I'm not advocating affirmative action, but what I do say is, well, anything that we decide or that a university decides to do on gender and race in terms of equity and diversity and inclusion, I think should be matched by equal action on ideological and political equity, diversity and inclusion. Now, if they want to do nothing on uh, race and gender, fine. But I don't think it's consistent to push policy in one area and not the other. And actually, when you poll on this, uh, in both the U.S. and Britain, uh, the polling numbers I've seen show pretty good bipartisan support. Most people actually agree that if you're pursuing one form of diversity and inclusion, you should be pursuing the other. Uh, but of course, that's not happening anywhere. So that would be sort of my uh, take on what needs to happen there. Yeah, that's an interesting way to, to think about that subject. Um, thanks, Eric. Let's move on to populism, if it's okay, a subject that you've, you've thought and, and, and written a lot about. How much is there a common set of issues or impulses behind right-wing populism across the Anglosphere versus more contingent explanations? I do think that, I mean, my view is that populism, certainly if we take the, the, the post-2014 populist moment, is very much rooted in the issue of immigration and the associated ethnocultural changes that are linked to that. Uh, if you look at the survey data, for example, there's almost no correlation between whether you are poor or rich, unemployed, in a job, etc. So personal economic circumstances uh, are, are next to, not totally irrelevant, but certainly in the case of Trump voting, I would say pretty much irrelevant. In the case of Brexit voting, they have a small effect. So this is not really about the dispossessed hitting back against the economic elite. Now, that's true for left-wing populism, but it's not true for right-wing populism, which is centrally around that question of immigration. And in fact, if you, just to give you some polling numbers, the poll was done of AFD voters in Bavaria in the, after the election. 100% of them, I think, yeah, I think it was 100% agreed with the statement, Germany is gradually losing its culture. Uh, and for Sweden Democrat voters, something like 99% favored reductions in immigration. I think that gives you a sense just of what is the key to this. It's very much substantively rooted in uh, our, a particular issue. Now, so what's interesting, I think, is if you look at, now, of course, you can have populism that's based in things like being against COVID restrictions. You know, I actually don't think that that is a significant source of populist movements we see across the West now, even though it has played in Canada. But I think that's sort of a, a departure from the pattern that we tend to see across the West. The Canadian and British Conservatives are in parallel leadership races. Let me ask you, are Pierre Polyev and Kimi Badenoch populists? If so, why? And if not, 
Why not? That's a good question. And actually, right now, we've just passed three o'clock here in London, and they've made a decision as to who has been eliminated. So I'll have to find that out after the show. But what I would say is, uh, I think there's a difference that I think Polyev, in my view, Polyev, yes, he is striking some populist notes, just as, by the way, mainstream politicians like even Macron will strike populist notes. I th I don't consider Polyev to necessarily be part. I, I think he sort of tangentially part of the same phenomenon. Badenoch, I would say, is much more clearly a populist because she's really tapping into those cultural issues around wokeness and immigration. Polyev, I think, has skirted, has shied away largely from those issues, except in a few places. He's largely about economics, which in my view is, is a relatively safe topic. You're not going to get cancelled for it. And in a way, the populist moment really was about parties moving away from just talking about economics to talking about those tricky cultural issues. That hasn't yet happened in, it's happened with the People's Party, but it's not happened with Polyev. So I guess I would still see that as pretty much a, a, a sort of standard conservatism, more of an establishment conservatism. I, I understand that Polyev is going against the establishment, particularly with defunding the CBC. That's probably his most populist kind of policy. But for the most part, he's talking about prices of gas and, and economics and things which are pretty uncontroversial and not going to get you in a lot of trouble uh, generally. Let me uh, follow up on that answer, which has a ton of interesting insight. It seems to me it begs the question, why haven't we seen the emergence of that kind of populism in Canada? Is it because we've done immigration and pluralism better than others? Or is it because of our political climate that uh, you know effectively discourages or even stamps out uh, heterodox thinking and ideas? Yeah, I think the way it tend, I think it's because of the uh, power of the cultural left in Canada. Now, of course, the way the power of the cultural left works is it, it works up until the point it doesn't work. So the suppression works to keep you know, ideas such as reducing immigration out of the political debate until that crumbles, as, is, as it did in Sweden. So Sweden also had a relatively strong political correctness, but in the face of the migrant wave in 2015, that consensus was disrupted, and now the discourse has shifted. What you see in Canada is you do see the People's Party raising these issues. You do see that conservative voters, for example, compared to liberal and NDP voters are like 50 points apart on immigration. So there's a natural place for the conservatives to go. But of course, the media environment and the cultural environment in Canada is, is you know, very strongly dominated by the cultural left. And until you get a figure that breaks through and is willing to take that on, you're unlikely to see uh, a similar phenomenon to Trump or Brexit or the Sweden Democrats. I, I would say that if there is an individual willing to do that, I would I would have thought they would get pretty good support. So I don't think it would, it's a question of a tipping point and when that is reached. And when that is reached, a lot of the frustration around the suppression will then actually go into this response. But you have to reach the tipping point. So I don't think Canada's reached that tipping point. I saw you recently tweet that Betanot was smart to recommit to the government's climate target of net zero emissions. Listeners might be a bit surprised to hear that. It, it doesn't seem to accord with conventional understandings of right-wing populism. Help us understand, how can a right-wing populist reconcile his or her conservative credentials with an ambitious climate change agenda? And more generally, what does this particular example tell us about populism? 
Well, I think you have the more economic issues, which can have a populist feel to them as well. I mentioned the pandemic. I mentioned, you know, you can talk about low tax. You can talk about uh, the environment. Um, there is a correlation to some extent between views on environment and views on the cultural issues, immigration, free speech, um, critical race theory, etc. However, I do think they are substantially different and, some, and the constituency is not entirely the same. I think that those cultural issues are much closer to the psychology of those who tend to vote for right-wing populism. I mean, the environment matters, but I, I guess, and this is partly because I generally do support action on climate change, to reasonable, not ridiculous. Uh, I think you can accommodate that while at the same time pushing on what I think are much more substantive problems around culture, because I think the cultural issues are very positional. You're either one way or the other. A lot of these other issues like the economy, COVID, and climate change, they're about trade-offs and fine points and finding optimal points. I don't think those are naturally necessarily the issues populist, uh, I don't know, populist voters are going to rally to. I mean, I do think that, that these cultural issues are much more foundational and that in a way, I think those who want to go that route should are, are advised to cleave to the political center on other issues and focus on, on what I think are probably more important uh, questions for their base. We recently had another Canadian born and raised Kaufman, Elliot Kaufman from the Wall Street Journal on the podcast, who was mostly dismissive of the rise of the so-called new right. What in your view defines the new right? And what do you think its prospects are for overturning conservative orthodoxy across the Anglosphere? Well, it depends what you what you mean by new right, because there's so many new rights. I'm losing track. You know, it's the French kind of far righty kind of new right. Do you mean uh, do you mean the populist right, the post 2014 populist right? I, I think part of that. Uh, I'm thinking, for instance, of U.S. figures like Soha Barmari, uh, Adrian Vermeule, some of the people who were previously at first things and now are associated with the magazine called compact right okay well i okay i think the religious aspect the critique of liberalism the desire for what what looks like theocracy i just don't see that it has a future now however having said that i do think there is certainly a critique of uh, the idea that individualism is the only thing the there is a room for a critique of you know, kind of market fundamentalism that, that doesn't value social bonds. I think that's fair, but I think the the kind of more religious, uh, the, the almost theocratic kind of uh, thinking, it, it, I just don't see where it's going to go. This Catholic, um, you know, conservatism, I just don't, I, whereas I think national conservatism is much more in tune with where a lot of voters are. I mean, especially in a world where, uh, certainly the power of the religious right, let's say, in the United States peaked kind of in the 1990s. I don't think that religious conservatism is really in the ascendant. I think it's much more uh, the national type of conservatism than I think is, is going to make more of the running. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. 
Sign up now free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. If I can just pick up that particular point, Eric, there's um, in conservative circles, there is a subtle yet important difference that's often discussed between so-called social conservatism and so-called cultural conservatism. Can you help listeners understand uh, what those differences are and and why I, I think if I understand you correctly, you think cultural conservatism may have more uh, salience than traditional social conservatism? Well, I, I think, I mean, there are social conservatism, which is more around issues like religion and family. I mean, it ha- clearly we've got issues around the breakdown of the family. We've got issues around people dropping out of the labor force and declining social trust and all of these things. So it has a contribution to make. I, I guess I just, I, I'm more of a, I guess what I call a negative liberal, to use Isaiah Berlin's term. I mean, I don't think you can chuck liberalism out. I, I think that that is not going anywhere. But I think it's important to have a range of voices. So, But in, in general, I think the decline of, there has been a decline of religious observance, a decline of energy on the religious right, and I don't see that as the major force that's going to shape this going forward. Um, this is, whereas the if you take the cultural or particularly, you know, national conservatism. I mean, if you look at public opinion, their issues have stood up much better than the religious issues uh, in terms of um, maintaining interest over generations. I think that whereas the transgenerational trend on a lot of the religious questions has been sort of in decline, whether it be religious attendance or some of the more religious issues around gay marriage and, and so on. I think there's been a a sort of secularization there. Now, that's not to say that there still isn't a valid critics, critique that can come from that tradition, but I don't think it's going to be the dominant tradition. I would say that national conservatism and that cultural conservatism will be more central, particularly as we face this threat from what you know, wokeness or what I would call cultural socialism, which I think is the driving force in the culture. And I think that and, and the response to that is really going to be key going forward. You anticipated my next question, Eric. I'm surprised when a lot of smart people dismiss the rise of wokeism as a right-wing fiction. So let me ask you, what is wokeism in your view, and how is it manifesting itself in modern society? Well, woke is, the, the definition of woke, I mean, people say it's a sl- it, it can be used as a slur, and it's used sloppily by some people to mean anything from, you know, opposition to, yeah, well, anything from views on the environment and, and opposing people who criticize uh, action on climate change and so on. The way I define wokeness is it is the sacralization, that is the making sacred of historically marginalized race, gender, and sexual sexuality groups. So once you buy into a framework that these groups are more moral, more spiritual, uh, they have certain kinds of knowledge that others don't have access to, that anything that offends the most sensitive member of these groups cannot be permitted that if you offend such a group, if you go against any policy like affirmative action, any movement like Black Lives Matter that is in the name of these groups, then you are a reprobate and you deserve to be expunged. Now, so that is, I mean, this is sort of the core uh, of wokeness, but wokeness is, of course, the religious, is the religious aspect to an ideology, which is what I term cultural socialism, and that is essentially a repurposing of egalitarianism from class and economics to identity. Um, And it involves two major elements, one of which is the redistribution of wealth, power, and prestige and self-esteem from oppressor groups to oppressed 
And secondly, the protection from harm, especially psychological harm, uh, of these totemic groups. And so once you've got those two elements in place, uh, you have cultural socialism. And, in, and then once that's unleashed in the institutions, it starts in the universities and then spreads out in the 2000s to other institutions and comes into collision really with two major forces. One is enlightenment liberalism, reason, due process, equal treatment, free expression. And then on the other hand, national traditions around cohesion, majority group identity, for example, uh, history. And so you get critical race theory and you get statute toppling and all the rest of it. So I think you, this is really, it's the expansion and surge of cultural socialism um, and, and all the impacts that that's having uh, that I think is going to be a central issue going forward in, in Western politics. We'll come to the kind of political salience of anti-wokeism in a minute. But before we get there, there's a tendency to assume that developments in right-wing politics over the past five or 10 years are occurring in isolation, which doesn't seem quite right to me. How much should we view the rise of right-wing populism as a dialogue with left-wing wokeism? I think the two are now linked. And you can see that in media content analyses where you see first the so-called great awakening. You see terms like racism, sexism, white privilege just explode in the sort of 20, from 2013, 14, 15 onward. But then around 2017, you start to see terms like woke, social justice warrior, et cetera, take off. Those are kind of the, the backlash terms. Um, now, what is the relationship to populism? So if you take the first wave of populism, my argument is the taboos, the discursive political correctness around uh, issues, particularly immigration, meant that mainstream parties like the Swedish moderates couldn't touch uh, the immigration issue. And that simply meant there was this big untapped market that political entrepreneurs like the Sweden Democrats moved into, or Trump moved into in the case of the United States, talking about illegal immigration on the border as his key issue. Um, and so actually, without the politically correct restrictions on debate, you would not have had the emergence of these populist actors. Now, once the populist actors come in, they energize the uh, cultural socialist woke uh, progressive activists who are sort of, you know, in the US case, okay, 8% are pro progressive activists, but I would say there's a wider penumbra uh, of cultural uh, left liberals, uh, which might be as large as even a third. They react against Trump or, or they react against Brexit in Britain or whatever. Um, and then Trump and Brexit say, hey, you're calling us a bunch of racists. We're not. And you're woke. And, and then you get this back and forth, right? So you get a, an initial difference which emerges uh, in terms of people's different responses to immigration. And then layered on top of that, you get this moral discourse between this sort of woke left and the anti-woke right. And we're into this kind of recursive radicalism right now. As you mentioned, you believe that anti-wokeism is good politics on the right. Does that analysis apply to Canada? And if so, what aspects of wokeism may find the, the most salience in the Canadian context? Yeah. So in the US and Britain, where I've done polling, um, on most of these issues, like teaching children that you know, Britain or America is a racist society built on stolen land, I mean, you're going to get overwhelming conservative opposition, like to the tune of 90, 95%. Uh, and the left is actually pretty fragmented between those who oppose and those who support this. So, you, so what these issues do is they fragment the left and unite the right, and there is a sort of two-to-one majority against. 
That means they're a perfect issue for mobilization. We've seen that in the Virginia race with Glenn Youngkin's victory on the critical race theory in schools issue. Now, in, in the case of Britain, I think Britain's a little bit behind the curve, but I think it's, it's moving, has, is moving in that direction. And I think I would expect in Canada this to occur as well. But I think Canada's a little, a little bit different in the sense that there is more of a sort of, there's more of a 60-40 left to right tilt, at least in the English-Canadian electorate, whereas in the U.S. and Britain, it's more like 50-50. So it's a trickier terrain federally. Uh, to navigate, you have you have a larger share of people who would support, say, woke positions on. I mean, for example, if you look at the um, at the issue of the residential schools and these ma the mass graves, which I consider to be a, a moral panic without any evidence base, but still, the fact that that had so much pickup in the uh, in the Canadian media and even in some opinion polls suggests that at least in Canada, there is more of a split that's closer to fifty fifty than two to one. I don't know the exact number. Um, so, I, I but I do think that the conservatives would be well advised to move on to cultural terrain. Now, there are the, the tactic on the left is to say this is a, a right wing moral panic. These are non issues next to the price of gas, and of course, they're less important issues than the economic ones, right? Especially right now. Um, but of course, that benefits the left because the left is already conducting its culture war in the institutions. All it needs is for government to stay out of the way, and it's going to be able to re. Uh, you know, remake all of these cultural institutions. It's only the right that needs to elevate this issue in formal politics because elected, uh, elected government is the only institution it really controls. And without elevating that issue in elected government, it's going to be powerless to stop the, uh, the onslaught, really. Yeah, that, that's a, a great insight, Eric. Uh, the, the language of culture war always seems lacking to me in the Canadian context because it doesn't feel like a culture for it or it feels like a, a one-sided shellacking. So your point about using politics and the political process to kind of confront some of these more extraordinary and extreme positions is 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 well taken. Let me ask a, a question that I recently put to Henry Olson from the Washington Post, who you no doubt know. Are we living in a populist moment or a populist era? <laughs> well, that's an interesting one. Uh well, I'd say populist era in the sense that there is a sort of structural, a structural force which I think is going is 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 making this an endemic feature of Western politics. Because what has happened is, and I think that increasingly, the axis of politics in the West revolves around culture and not economics. It, it revolves around this divide between what I call cultural socialism on the one hand and cultural liberalism and conservatism on the other, which, which believes in both the Enlightenment and national tradition. And because of that, and because of the success of the left in capturing elite institutions, there is almost an inbuilt extent to which conservatism has to campaign against existing institutions. And that tends to involve a kind of populism, because you're anti whoever the elite is who controls the institutions. Now, I don't think it's entirely I mean, I think it's a useful stance, but I, I, I still believe in these institutions. I think they should be reformed and not abolished. But you can see where there, when the other side controls the institutions, there's a, an awful lot of incentive to, to sort of rail against the elites in those institutions. So I think there is a kind of inbuilt dynamic here where we're going to see really populism as long as there is a sort of very strong cultural left controlling uh, these institutions. That's a good segue to some final questions about your critically acclaimed book, 
white shift. You mentioned earlier the role that immigration has played in fueling the rise of some of these political movements. A key insight from the book is that across Western societies, we're seeing a transformation of populations due to high levels of immigration. And that is manifesting itself in a renewed sense of identity amongst previously majority populations. Can, can you just help listeners understand a bit your, your thesis and the long-term political consequences of these demographic and cultural transformations of, of Western societies? Well, yeah, I think the, the ethno-demographic shifts you talk about um, are very much linked to the rise of national populism. Now, that's a pretty uh, uncontroversial statement now in academia where hundreds or thousands of papers have now been written on this. Um, for example, I mean, Ashley Jardina's work on white identity politics in the U.S., really makes the point that even when you control for racism, let's say, traditional measures of racism or even racial resentment, attachment to being white, white identification, independently predicted a vote for Trump. So, and the way this, that we can think about this is hostility to outgroups versus attachment to in-group. So even if you feel warmly towards outgroups, and actually, there's no correlation between hostility to outgroups and attachment to in-group, by the way, for white Americans or white British or white Canadians, by the way, which is an interesting finding. So it's that attachment to in-group now that predicts support for populism. So that's one factor that, that I think is quite important. The other, the other one is that if you take the immigration issue, it's not that people who said, I want less or I want more immigration suddenly switched to saying, I, I want less immigration. What you had in Europe and America was people who already said, you know, I want less immigration. Instead of immigration being their number six, seven, eight issue after the economy and healthcare, it's their number one or two issue. Once that happens, populist parties really start to take off. And that's kind of what, what occurs in Britain, really through the 2000s, leading up to the Brexit vote, and in Europe, quite sharply after 2014. Um, and so there is this very close relationship, I think, between uh, immigration as an issue and populist right voting. Now, I think people sometimes say, hey, well, we'll look about these cities like London, which have lots of lots of immigrants, and yet they don't vote for Brexit. But But that's actually a very misleading analysis. If you take, you know, yes, London has a lot of young people. It has a lot of university-educated professionals and a lot of ethnic minorities. If you actually were to, to compare apples to apples, so a white working-class Londoner and a white working-class Brit from any other part of the UK, there's no difference in their propensity to vote leave. And so it isn't so much the case that these complex cities have, have a culture which is just more tolerant. Actually, not really. It's more a case that they have different types of people who, who are less likely uh, to vote for populist parties. Eric, let's end the conversation where we started. You, you talked uh, earlier about how your personal background and experience has, has shaped your work, and that extends to the thesis of White Shift. One of the, the key insights is that the demographic transformation that you just described will ultimately reach something of a settlement through an increase in intermarriage in countries like Canada, the United States, UK, and elsewhere. Do you want to talk a bit about that and the cultural and political turbulence that may occur before we reach that settlement? Well, yeah, I, I guess the, in a way, the white shift 1.0 argument is we have rising diversity and that's going to be associated with 
uh, you know, greater uh, apprehension about identity on the part of majority groups, and that's going to be a, 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 one of the factors fueling populism. But of course, you also have intermarriage, which is significant. You know, I think it's something like uh, one in two black Britons marries out and something like one in three Hispanic and Asians in the United States marry out. Uh, in Canada, uh, because of the larger East Asian, South Asian populations, there's somewhat lower um, as a percentage, somewhat lower outmarriage, but there's high outmarriage amongst black Canadians. But then the end result of that outmarriage process, I would argue, is going to be a kind of melting and assimilation into a, a new majority, which kind of is built on the old majority, adopts a lot of its myths and collective memories. Um, and, and this has happened a lot through history, by the way, um, in, in places like Hungary and Turkey and Russia and so on. Uh, and, and so I guess longer term, we could imagine a declining in of diversity through the melting process, and that will take uh, the steam out of this issue. But that's not really going to happen in a big way till the end of our century going into the next one. So we have a real takeoff. You know, I looked at Britain, the projections would have something based on current intermarriage rates. It's only reaching about 7% mixed by 2050, but by the end of the century, it's 30%. And then pretty quickly after it reaches sort of 75 80, 90% in the 21st century. So, so the argument essentially is that we're going to have this emergence of a new melting pot majority based around the old uh, white cores. And that sort of reduction in diversity will take um, a lot of the heat out of this, uh, out of these divisions. And, and a lot of the, um, the worry out of the, out of uh, majority populations. And I think as that, but that's not going to happen in our lifetimes. And I think in our lifetimes, we're going to see um, rising diversity and ethnic-based change occurring at a quicker rate than uh, assimilation. And therefore, I think that the configuration for populist politics and cultural polarization will remain. Now, it, it, it's important to note, even though that this configuration will remain. The divisions are not so much between whites and minorities, as, as we're seeing in America. Uh, a lot of Hispanics moving over to the Repub Republican Party, but I think what we'll see is, is ideologies um, that use racial attitudes. So it's not going to be your race, but your racial attitudes, your attitudes to policies like affirmative action. Uh, to movements like BLM, that that is going to be an important dividing line in politics. Well, this has just been a fascinating conversation, Eric. Thank you so much for helping me and our listeners understand some of the dynamics behind our, our current cultural and, and political moment. Eric Kaufman, professor at the University of London, affiliated scholar at, at several think tanks across the Anglosphere, and author of the must-read book, White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks very much, Sean. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. 
Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.